Our passage today is from Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The Babylon Bee, a Christian satire website, recently published an article entitled, The Apostle Peter Cringes While Reading Gospel Accounts of All the Dumb Stuff He Did. This is what the article says. Heaven. According to reports from the afterlife, the Apostle Peter is really embarrassed every time he reads the accounts of the Gospels and all the dumb stuff he did back then. Oh man, guys, please don't read the one where I fall into the water again, he said, putting his hands on his face as he gathered with the other disciples for some eternal fellowship and reading of the New Testament. Come on, James, John, you're with me, right? Bart, what about you? But the other disciples insisted on reading the narrative of all the times Peter put his foot in his mouth during Jesus' ministry. From the time he suggested they build houses for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, to the time Jesus was forced to rebuke him for suggesting he didn't need to go to the cross. Peter cringed hard while his friends cracked up over the story where Peter tells Jesus he can't watch his feet wash his feet, and then says he actually wants Jesus to give him a bath. Guys, really, it's not funny anymore. Sources also claim that the Apostle John read the story where he beats Peter in a foot race to the tomb several times, emphasizing the fact that Peter ran so slow that John actually won even with a head start. I'm sure there could have been uh, many times in the apostles' lives after the ascension where they might have looked back on their time with Jesus and wished that they knew then what they know now about him. One of those times could have certainly been during our passage this morning where the disciples don't quite have a full grasp on Jesus' identity and the scope of his authority over all creation. And that is what our story deals with. It deals with the question of Jesus' identity and his authority and how he uses the miracle of calming the storm to communicate these things to his disciples. Well, as you guys know, we are in the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Um, I love the gospel of Mark because it is the shortest gospel, and so you can read it quickly and feel like you accomplished something whenever you're doing your devotionals. Not a bad one to start with. Um, I always encourage people when you need something to read for your devotional time, go through the gospels. That's a great one to go with. Um, 
Matthew is a good one to start with as well. Um, but we are in the book of Mark. And while all the Gospels have the, intent, the uh, intention of identifying to their readers who Jesus is, the Gospel of Mark is very focused on organizing um, the events that he chose to record around the identity of Jesus. So Mark's intention is for us to read this gospel and come away with an understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. He says it in the very first verse of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before our passage begins, Jesus had already been performing various miracles throughout his ministry. He was casting out demons, healing lepers and those who were sick or had physical ailments. Not only did he heal a paralytic, but he told them that his sins were forgiven. Because of all of his authoritative teaching and miraculous healings, people followed him wherever he went. And it tells us in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from Around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So the crowds were so much that they were a physical danger to him and his disciples. As someone who doesn't really enjoy crowds, this is just a a big fear of mine as well. Um, I can't even imagine it. But right before our passage, Jesus is completing a lengthy teaching ministry by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He's probably been teaching there all day and has been teaching the crowds many things and as well as healing the sick. We get a list right before this of four parables about the sower, the lamp, the growing seed, and the mustard seed. These parables are about the coming kingdom of God and what it will be like. And he speaks in parables to the crowds, but explains in secret to the disciples what they mean. The calming of the storm miracle is the first of four miracles that happen in a row to demonstrate Jesus' authority. The three that follow are the exorcism of the demon-possessed man, um, the giving of life to Jairus' daughter, and the healing of the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. All of these miracles demonstrate Jesus' right to proclaim the kingdom of God. Of God, So, let's dive into our passage for this morning, where Jesus is at an end, the end of a full day of teaching. So we're at section one of your notes, the calm before the storm. Verses 35 and 36, it says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now again, Jesus says at the end of a full day of teaching about the kingdom of God. Um, of course, he's, we see four parables that he teaches, but he probably teaches a lot more than what we see. And he's probably healing people all throughout the day as well. And we know from earlier in the chapter that Jesus is teaching from a boat. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea in a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So remember, there's so many people that 
Jesus is in physical danger of being crushed, and he's out on a boat, and he's created a boat, a boat pul- pulpit to preach from. I think that's a good idea for us. We should try that out sometime. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's on a boat, and he's preaching to all these people who have crowded to him because he's, he's healing people, right? He's, all these people who are sick and in need, he's healing them. And so people are coming and crowding to him because they, they want to be healed, and they want to hear his teaching. He teaches as one, though, as one who has authority. So at the end of the day, when uh, evening was upon them, it was getting darker. Jesus decides to end his teaching time, and he leads, decides to lead his disciple on a trip to the other side of the lake. Okay? And this, of course, is referring to the Sea of Galilee, um, which people at this time kind of used like a highway to get from place to place. Today is known as Lake Kinneret. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And for a reference point, the Buckman Bridge is a little over 3 miles long. So the Sea of Galilee is, is pretty big. Um, it's not quite a sea like the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's more of a freshwater lake. Um, but it is a large lake. And it sits like a bowl 700 feet below the sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains. On the west and northwest, the mountains raise up to 1,500 feet, and on the east and northeast, the mountains raise up to 3,000 feet. It's a freshwater lake, and it's known for its excellent fishing. Um, this is just a neat little fact. In 1896, there was uh, one fishing boat that alone brought in 9,200 pounds of fish. From the Sea of Galilee. Now that's a little bit after our, what's going on here. But um, there's a reason why there's so many fishermen around in the, in the New Testament stories. And why maybe around, what, seven of the disciples are fishermen? Most of the commentators I've read have commentated on the lake's unique location and its frequent storms. Because of its unique location, it's prone to severe winds, both in the summer months and in the winter months. So the men accompanying Jesus would have been men who were seasoned fishers, and they would have known the lake well and would have been familiar with its storms. So Jesus is in a boat big enough to fit himself and 12 disciples, 12 other men. And as evening comes, they begin their journey across the Sea of Galilee, and they are starting on the northwest coast of the lake near town of uh, Capernaum, and we'll be heading east. And we might assume that he's heading that way to rest and get away from the crowds, but of course we know as soon as he lands, uh, he is met by a man possessed by an unclean spirit. So verse 36 tells us that they took him just as he was. Okay, so he was preaching from a boat, and soon he was done preaching. He didn't get any transition time. They just began to travel along the Sea of Galilee. So he taught, 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 and then stayed in the boat, and traveled. So what we have a, a picture of here is a little flotilla of sailing ships going across the water. And it's, it's kind of peaceful at first. There's um, ships together. It's evening. It's uh, starting to dim down. And uh, the water is calm. And it stays that way at least for a little bit. So Luke tells us that they're sailing across. It's peaceful, peaceful and calm. And then we come to our next section, verse Verses 37 through 39, the calm during the storm. 
Verse 37. And there arose a fierce gale of winds, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So the peaceful scene doesn't last for long, at least for not, not for us as the reader. Suddenly, there comes upon the disciples an enormous storm. Uh, the word used for gale is a word used to describe hurricanes or whirlwinds. And then uh, fierce is megas, means great. And so there's a great whirlwind, um, a great wind or wind storm that has suddenly come upon them. In Matthew's account, he uses the word seismos, which, of course, refers to earthquakes. Okay, so there's a wind coming down upon them, and the sea and the waves are shaking as if it's like they're on land experiencing an earthquake. It's like, a, it's like boiling water almost is kind of the picture that I see. So the wind is furiously funneling down the slopes of the mountains and shaking up the sea. Uh, so not only is the ship being tossed around, though, it's being filled with water. It's being filled too quickly. They can't dump out the water faster than it's being filled. So it can't survive. Uh, it can't last too much longer in the, in the state. Have any of you ever been on a ship during a storm? Oh, We've got, we got a few of you here. I figured some of you have. I, I never have. It sounds terrifying. Um, the ships are probably a little bit sturdier today than back then. I guess it depends what you're on. But it sounds terrifying. And uh, the ship is filling up, and it's not going to last long. And the disciples react accordingly. So, of course, the question comes to mind, uh, what is Jesus doing during all of this? Well, let's see. Verse 38. Jesus, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Okay, Jesus is asleep. Why is Jesus asleep? He's exhausted. Okay, he's exhausted. He's been teaching all day. He is so tired that he has passed out at the stern of the ship. My research has shown me that stern means the back of the ship. So he's asleep in the back of the ship. And he is passed out, exhausted, tired. During this enormous storm. Um, has anybody ever been that tired before? Yeah? The last time I think I can remember being that tired is I think when Liam was born. Um, it, we, we were at the hospital. We were up for 48 hours. Um, and I think I was helpful at the hospital. I can't remember. And then we brought Liam back home. And I tried to help out as much as I could through the middle of the night. And when it was my turn to fall asleep, I fell asleep. And I could not be woken up. Ruth could not wake me up. I think I slept in until the middle of the day the next day. Sorry, Ruth. Um, but it's possible. He's so tired, he's sleeping during the storm. And so the disciples wake him up, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The disciples' response is panic. It's concern. They're afraid. They think they're going to die. And these are seasoned fishermen. They know the sea. Um, they probably experienced a storm or two. So this seems to be one that is serious. Um, here it says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew records it and it says, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Luke has it as, Master, Master, we are perishing. And I think the disciples could be yelling all those things. The one consistent word throughout the uh, 
the testimonies is that word perishing, apolumetha, which means uh, per- to perish or to die. They're yelling, Jesus, we're dying. <laughs> we're going to die. Why aren't you doing anything? So notice they expect that Jesus can do something. Um, I don't think they expect him to do what he does, but it seems like they're expecting that he can do something. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal. They've seen him uh, offer forgiveness. So they expect that Jesus can do something. Maybe he can bail them out in some way. So they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So what is Jesus' response? Verse 39, and he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Can you imagine that? Being in a storm that tumultuous, like being in a boiling pot, you know? And Jesus stands up and commands the waves in the sea and the wind, and it stops. Okay, so this isn't, this isn't like a gradual, like the storm is, is going away, and it gradually starts to get lower and lower, and everything gets calm. He commands the sea, and it obeys him, and it stops. I uh, have a children's book based on the story called The Storm That Stopped, and there's two pages um, from this scene, and I love it because the first page on the left is a picture of all the disciples in cartoon images just freaking out, waving and flailing their arms, screaming, and it has Jesus yelling, quiet, be still, and, the next, and it's dark, and the waves are everywhere, and the next page it's, it's light, and the, the sea is completely dead still, and the disciples' faces are hilarious because it's just, their mouths are just dropped open, and they're just in shock and awe, they're just like, like all of them. I meant to get it up here, but I forgot to do that. But it's a, it's a wonderful, hilarious portrait of what's going on. But it's also accurate. They're in shock, and they're terrified. But Jesus, he rebukes the wind. Rebuke meaning uh, has a connotation of command with a, a hint of a warning, um, which I think is great. And he told the wind to hush and be still, and it was so. Uh, I think the Net Bible translate, translates it as dead still. I like that. It gives you a good picture. Nothing was moving. So all Jesus had to do was speak, and creation obeyed his voice. He turned chaos into peace with just a few words. So let's look next at Jesus' next response. So we're going to look at the calm after the storm. Verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it you have no faith? Now, I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but that seems a little harsh, right? I mean, they, they're understandably thinking they're going to die. <laughs> and this is Jesus' response to them. Why are you, uh, I think other translations have, why are you so cowardly? Well, I, I probably would have been cowardly too. Uh, Jesus is rebuking the disciples for fearing for their lives during the worst storm that they have probably ever experienced. Um, but Jesus rebukes them. Um, the, the question for me is, the disciples have a complete understanding of who Jesus is at this point. I don't think they have a complete one. I think 
they have some faith. They've been following him. They've been listening to his teaching. They've given up. Uh, they've given up everything they've had to follow him. Um, but they obviously didn't believe enough to think he could command creation and that creation would obey him. Um, if you look in uh, in in Matthew, it says uh, people of little faith, um, and that's. When, it's, when people of little faith is used in Matthew, it tends to refer to a, kind of a, a shallow faith, a, a faith, a surface-level faith that uh, only sees what's going on around you. Um, they don't have the faith that they will have. But Jesus does seem to have corrected that problem with everything that's happened, as we see by their response in the next verse, verse 31. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the disciples' response is to be very afraid. Literally, the Greek says that they were afraid with great fear. So they were very afraid. They were afraid during the storm. They were greatly afraid during the storm, but now they're afraid during the calm uh, because they are in the same boat as a man who had just commanded the sea and the waters to stop. Okay, and we're very used to this story, but being there and seeing someone actually stop this massive storm that you think is going to take your life, I mean, that is just extraordinary. Uh, There's something extraordinary about this person, Jesus. They asked the question at the end that I think is the entire point of the story, who then is this? So Mark, when he's writing the story, knows who Jesus is at the end. Uh, he wants his audience to understand who Jesus is. So as we conclude the passage, let's answer that question. All right, so for our conclusion, um, Mark's story of Jesus calming the storm tells us two things about Jesus. It tells us about his identity and about his authority. All right, first let's talk about Jesus' identity. All right, so now what can we uh, learn about what this passage is telling us about Jesus' identity, okay? And it, um, if we go back to the Old Testament, there are numerous passages about God controlling the wind and the sea, okay? But I think there's one very obvious story that we can go to that has a lot of parallels in this story, and that, of course, is the story of Jonah. And I did not just choose this passage just so I can preach on Jonah again, even though it is nice. Um, but... <laughs> We're going back to Jonah, and there are a lot of parallels here between this story and Jonah. Okay, first, look at Jonah 1.4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Okay, so Jonah was running away from the Lord. He had ran from Samaria, maybe somewhere in the northern kingdom, to Joppa, a long ways, and he's on a ship, And the Lord is stopping him, so he hurls this great wind upon this sea, and the ship is about to break up. And then Mark 4, 37, it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Each story has a great storm, so great that the veteran sailors fear for their lives, and that the ships are going down. Next, Jonah 1, 5 through 6. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
I assume, from running from the northern kingdom to Joppa. He's tired. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Mark 4.38, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I forgot to mention that he's asleep on the cushion, right? The Son of God needs a pillow. Um, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So they both are asleep, the stern at the bottom of the ship from exhaustion, um, both asleep during the storm in the In Jonah, the sailors wonder if Jonah's God will care about their lives. And Mark, the disciples, wonder if Jesus cares for their lives. Next, Jonah 1, 11 through 15. This one's a little bit longer. Um, Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? The sailors are saying this to Jonah. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not, on us, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Mark four thirty nine, And he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So in Jonah, Jonah and the sailors appeal to Yahweh in order to stop the storm, and he stops the storm. In Mark, Jesus appeals to no outside authority, but on his own authority, he commands the storm to stop, and the storm stops. And finally, Jonah 1.16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Mark 4.41, the disciples, they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We said before that there's something extraordinary about this Jesus. And I think the parallels here tell us clearly who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God. The one who can control the wind and the sea. Jesus is the Lord. So I think the disciples are learning that, which is why they're so afraid. Um, Next, so that's Jesus' identity. Let's look at Jesus' authority. There's also, there's a lot of Psalms that we could speak about that speak about the Lord's authority over the wind and the sea. We'll just look at a few. Psalm 135, 5 through 7 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. 
Psalm 89.9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Finally, Psalm 65, 5-7. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God, of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. So just as uh, the Lord has authority over creation, so Jesus also has authority over creation. So I hope you can see the connection here that is being made between Jesus and the Lord. Um, I think it's pretty clear. So what does this mean for us? First of all, it means that Jesus is God. He's the one through whom all creation was made. And as such, he has authority over all creation. And so in Sunday school, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And I think Noah and the flood and the judgment of God upon the world through the flood. And the Lord, um, when, he's, when, he does the, when he does the flood, when he's pouring out the waters upon the earth, he opens the windows of the heavens and the waters are pouring out of the earth from below the earth. The Lord is controlling all the waters all upon the earth. Um, he has authority over all creation. So that means he has the right to judge his creation. It means the, he has the right to provide forgiveness for his creation. It also means that he has the right to require obedience from you and I. Because he has authority over us from his word. So my hope for each one of you is that this truth of Christ's identity and authority would be an encouraging reminder to you that you have placed your faith in an awesome God who is able to accomplish what he has set out to do in each one of you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are indeed mighty and awesome. Um, the works of Jesus are indeed incredible, are indeed extraordinary. They are anything but ordinary. Um, and Lord, it is just simply amazing that with all the authority that you have, that you sent Christ to take our place on the cross, to take the punishment for sin that we deserved. And that all that is needed for forgiveness and salvation is belief in what he has done for us. God, we thank you so much for that. And we are just in awe of everything that you have done and in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in his name we pray these things. Amen.